Welcome to the School of the Word. This is Lesson 92 in our teaching series, As in the Days of Noah, titled Summary of the Book of Revelation, Part 27, Chapters 21 and 22, That Holy City. Our teacher is Alan Smith. Good morning. How is everyone? Good deal. We had a good service for our friend and brother Ron Ross yesterday. Wonderful. Saw a lot of people that I haven't seen for a while. Just a great service in remembrance of where we're headed and destination. It must not be too hard. There's a lot of people done it. Couldn't be too difficult. <laughs> I have a prophetic word this morning from an individual that uh, gave this to me and I, for this year, and I want to read it. Thus says the Lord who made them, the Lord who formed them. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Behold, I will bring health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. I will cause the captives to return and will rebuild those places as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me. Then it shall be to me a name of joy, praise, and honor. Amen. Bring it on, Lord. Look forward to this year. I think 24 is this time next year. I think we're going to say, wow, I'm glad that year's over. Now, that doesn't, sound, that doesn't sound like a lot of encouragement, but you can win a marathon, and at the end of it, you're still tired and rejoicing. So I think next year, this year, will be a rejoicing and a time of great movement of the church. And I felt like a prophetic word for this year also was that it's going to be a very active year, a lot of movement. And I think that God's going to empower the church with more of his presence and his power. But the main emphasis of the word that I received was, but pay attention to the governing factor. If you've got a lawnmower or you've got any kind of engine, an engine has a set of governors on it. And the governors is what causes it to, or like your car, when you go up a hill, the governors kick in. In other words, it gives your engine more fuel in which to make the climb. But also a set of governors, like on the, in big trucks, where a set of governors will cap off how fast you can go, 65, 70 miles an hour, whatever. You can set the governors so you can't go but so fast. But So a set of governors does about three or four different things. But I felt like the word was that the Church of Christ should be very sensitive to the governing factor. And with the power of the Holy Spirit comes a set of governing factors with the Holy Spirit. That's reason in the church and the movement of the Spirit, we realize. We want movement of the Spirit. A lot of people say, well, let's do some wildfire if we get any fire. And I tend to err in that area, but also understand that the Holy Spirit has a governing factor to it, where we're to test all things, we're to test them, and to see if they be of the Spirit of God. And so I think going into 2024, we've already been warned through the Scriptures that deception is the greatest thing being offered to people and to believers is the deception. God will pour out more of his power, I believe, if we understand the restraining power that comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a restraining, restraining power that comes with the power. And the restraining power is what gives us permission, if you will, to walk in the power of the Spirit. 
is to understand his restraining power. It's even said in the scripture that the, that the one who now lets, lets, uh, and it's talking about the Holy Spirit is restraining the power even of the enemy today. It's a governing factor upon the Holy, by the Holy Spirit upon evil and upon God's power. So I think as we move forward, I'm going to hit a few topics in the next few months to come about the restraining power and the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we, the restraining understanding, the restraining power revelation has to come before the impartation of the power of God. And I believe that God's going to give us that wisdom. A lot of times in churches or in movements of the Holy Spirit, leadership can look like it's holding back the movement of the Holy Spirit, which actually is trying to operate in the wisdom of the restraining power of the Holy Spirit and understanding that we want the Holy Spirit to move and not our flesh to move. Did you know, you do understand the Holy Spirit can move with us or without us, right? <laughs> he can move either way and our choice is to move with the Spirit. I'm going to finish up my revelation today, whether I get done or not. I make that declaration at the front end. We are done today. And the reason is I'm going to introduce this next teaching, which is a complimentary teaching unto as in the days of Noah. It's complimentary. I will drop that slide and get a new one just because I'm tired of looking at it. And, uh, but in reality, it's a complimentary teaching too, as in the days of Noah, because I've tried to share with you how the New Testament church was always walking in the governing factor, if you will, and the revelation of, if you will, that the second coming of Christ was, could be right upon them. And so when we realize that's what they're thinking, then a lot of the scriptures make more sense. We understand. So I'm going to teach the book of Acts. I'm going to attempt to. But I'm also going to teach the book of Acts and show how the writings, book of Acts lasts 32 to 34 years. It covers that much time. It wasn't written until around 60 some AD actually. But the book of Acts covers 32, four years. And in that 32 and that 34 years, we have the Acts, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, which technically should have just been said the Acts of the Church. The two main apostles is Paul and Peter. So you'd like to call it a little more than that, but it's actually the Acts of the Early Church, which includes the Apostles. And so I want to try to teach that. And then when we come to a place in Acts that Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, we're going to switch to 1 Thessalonians and insert it into the book of Acts in light of where Paul is in the book of Acts. And then we'll understand that those revelations will apply to that period and that time. Trying not to read into 1 Thessalonians something that was written in 2 Corinthians because you got further revelations. You see, they kept getting revelations from, from God, but they were complimentary. But as Christians, a lot of times we'll read into Acts chapter two and three, a revelation that didn't happen until 20 years later. And then that's a, what we call a misapplication. You're not in chronological order with the appropriate application of the revelation in that time period. So chronological order is important in understanding that. But I do understand you know, the scriptures is an incredible book. And, uh, you know, the, we have different scriptures that we have a, what I call a literal interpretation of application. And then we have a spiritual interpretation of application. And a scripture can, a particular scripture can be taken out of context, but yet the Holy Spirit can quicken it to my own personal heart. 
We all understand that. And you say, well, Alan, it looks like that God's breaking the rule of proper interpretation, but I submit God can do anything he wants to. <laughs> if he wants to insert a scripture in your life, that's his business. And the only reason I can say that is I have experienced that. But the teaching will be from an approach of chronologically how the revelations were revealed within this time period of the Acts of the Apostles. And lest I continue teaching that today, let me get on with finishing up <laughs> Revelation. But that will begin next Sunday. But there again, in my mind, I'm just continuing the understanding of as in the days of Noah. Does that make, can you go there with me? In understanding that they were under that mindset and the church today, I believe, should be in the same mindset. The return of Christ is what we call, it's his imminent, he's his imminent return, which means that he surely is coming again. With that in mind, I want to do a little quote here. Billy Graham, I love his things. The prophets who spoke to their generations for God did not please and comfort. They irritated and opposed. That's not a good woke quote. I don't think Billy Graham was too woke. But that's a, that's a true statement. So let's move forward. I'm going to do a little more out of that statement. And now in this last teaching, there's a few things I want everybody to get. There's a, what we call a divine outline in Revelation 1 and 19. It says, write the things which thou hast seen. This is in your Bible, Revelation 1, 19. We call it the divine outline of the book of Revelation. And he says it, and this is the verse, write the things which thou hast seen. Now, when that verse is used... Thou hast seen would be everything that he wrote up until he penned this quote, write the things thou hast seen, which is chapter one. That's the vision he had of Christ. You remember that, the lampstands and all that. So that is the first part of the outline. And the things which are, which is what was going on then, which is the seven churches in chapters two and three. Then he said, and the things which shall be hereafter. So that's, you know, basically past, present, and future. So the book of Revelation is divided into those three divisions, which follows after the churches in chapter 4, verse 22, actually. Now there is a distinction, and we'll see that more in the book of Acts, how Paul makes a distinction in the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church. And then you got Paul and Peter who have a discussion and they decide, well, Paul, you go to the Gentiles. Peter said, I'm going to keep going to the Jews. And then we get the revelations later on that they're one new man. They're a body, the body of Christ. And I want us to see when these things are inserted, when Paul gets more revelation, then we understand we get this revelation to bring understanding. Then Paul writes the book of Romans, which brings us understanding, hey, guess what? Israel's being blinded by God. So we have that revelation. We have that understanding. And in the book of Acts, the last few verses, last few verses of the book of Acts, you got to understand in that 30 some year period, the apostle Paul, during that 30 years, so 30 years after Christ left, the apostle Paul went to the Jewish synagogues first with a message with the gospel message for 30 years. So that was God long suffering with Israel. The answer is yes. But then in Acts 28, 28, there's a prophecy of Isaiah. And we'll go over that in Acts 28, 28, where God says, they're not my people anymore after this day. And he puts them in derision, it's called. So we see that Israel becomes blinded 
The blindness surely had already take, was taking place, but God said, here's the cutoff day, Acts 28, 28. Now, we see that that coincides, if you will, with the rapture of the church as far as the book of Revelation is concerned. And that is in chapters 4, verses 22, as you can see up here. After chapter 4 through 22, the church is not mentioned again in the book of Revelation. That's because I believe that the church has been raptured out in the Laodicean church age of chapter 3. So you move into chapter 4, it's all about Israel again, about the Jewish nation again. So from chapter 4 to 22, it's totally Jew and prophecy and the wrath of God and this type of stuff. So as we move in this understanding, we'll start seeing it revealed. And I believe that 2024 is going to be the year that New Life Church is, we're going to go into hyperdrive on teaching. We're going to raise the standards. We'll be going into more of a college class, if you will. We're going to push this element some of teaching of the Word of God, of us all reading the Word of God. The pastor and I are talking now about possibly there's an app out there and we're talking through how this could be done. There's some churches now that through certain Bible apps that the church is all reading the same thing daily through a Bible app. There's, here's our today's scripture reading. And the whole church would be reading the same thing. Now, there's a key in this understanding, and I've said this maybe one other time, but a draft horse can pull 8,000 pounds, about a big draft horse. So the question is, how many pounds can two draft horses pull? Well, you would think if one could pull eight, two could pull 16,000 pounds. But what happens if you make a hitch, and that's the reason you have a hitch of draft horses, and they work better in sets of twos, but they sometimes have fours. But when you hitch two draft horses together that can pull 8,000 pounds each, that 8,000 pounds turns in on the end, or the single tree, you call it, the tree that comes behind them. When you hook it to plow whatever, they can pull 16,000 pounds. They don't double, they triple. This is a type of a multiple, I think, a spiritual revelation of strength. And what happens, so the strength of a church pulling together, reading the same scripture, brings us into a level of, what good is unity? Unity has a multiplication factor of strength, is what it has. And so, Pastor and I are talking, and Trevor, and we'll be talking with the elders, and of this idea of the church. A lot of people, you know, don't even read the scriptures daily. And we're not going to say that that's good or bad or indifferent. But I do believe that as a church, if we could all get on the same page and agree, okay, we're all going to read this scripture today, that when we come together, even on Sundays and in small groups and things, it's going to be amazing. And this is not our original idea. There's churches already doing this. And it's having tremendous, tremendous impact upon the congregations and upon individuals. And so therefore, 2024, it'll be turned up the Word of God and how we're moving in the revelation and the understanding of that. So as chapters 4 and 22 returns back more to a prophetic state, now you got to understand the church of the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3, is speaking more to what we call the time of the mystery or the time of the grace of God or the last 2,000 years has been a time that God's withheld his judgment from the earth and he's poured out his grace and his mercy. And we say, well, how could all of this be happening, you know, in the earth where God's pulling back his, he's poured out his grace. He's giving people opportunity for salvation. 
And it's not a work salvation, it's a grace salvation. So we find ourselves living in this period, but this period, according to Scripture, will come to a close, will come to, to an end. So we're seeing that end begins in chapter 4 through 22, gives us revelation and understanding. I've already given you this. I call it the architectural structure of the book of Revelation. And there's an architectural structure throughout the scriptures on how God thinks, how he sets up things. To the rational mind, it doesn't look like that it's a type of structure at all. But once you see it, you're like, wow, God's ways are above our ways and he has his purposes. And I've went over that. He has uh, four groups of sevens, which we've been over somewhat, that is part of his structure. Now, the Bible tells us that the earth, the world symbolized by Babylon will be destroyed, making a way for a new heaven and a new earth. That's where it ends up in the book of Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. Now we're going to kick in here. I want to show you in Second Peter where this is the days before that are spoken about. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night and the, which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. That's given to us in Second Peter. And then he goes on to say, Seeing them that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation, it says, and godliness. Now you have to ask yourself the question, why does he put in there holy conversation? God, seeing that all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons should you be? Well, it's putting an emphasis here on your conversation and your godliness. Now, holy conversation and godliness is good for us, for sure, but there's more to it. There's more to holy conversation and godliness. Holy conversation and godliness lines you up to be able to hear the voice of God. That's what it does. It's not, oh, hey, he's a good guy, he's a holy guy, he's this, yada, yada, yada. And do we have grace for unholy conversation or whatever? I guess you could say we do. But the question is, is God going to give you, you see, this holy conversation and godliness, godliness produces a holy conversation with God if you can see that. Now, the days we're living in, I'm of total persuasion that a little holy conversation with God's going to go a long ways. So, now in Second Peter then, he goes on to say, looking for that and hastening to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. He goes on to say, nonetheless, we according to his promise look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells what? Righteousness. I want to get into a few concepts here in just a second. He says, I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he shall dwell with them. They shall be his people and God himself will be with their God and God will wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write for these words are true and they are faithful. And he said, unto me, it is done. I'm Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is in a thirst of the fountain of the water of life uh, freely. We have spoken, my prayer for the churches uh, this year is that we'll become thirsty for the things of God. We'll become thirsty once again to where we just can't wait to get here. We can't wait to read the scriptures daily, that our thirst and that coming out of this <laughs> fountain of God will be the water of life. He that overcometh shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, adulterers, liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire 
fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, he speaks here of the fearful and unbelieving. To be unbelieving is to be fearful. In other words, when we're not believe, when we feel fear coming in our life, just understand that's a signal to us that we're not, it's a signal. Oh, I'm fearing this. It can be operations. It can be fear of whatever you want to call it. Now, the fear can come, but it's a signal to us. Trust God. Give this to God. Trust God in this moment. That's the signal. So a fear coming in is a signal that we're, what produces the fear is a place of unbelieving. Now, the bride, it goes on to say, Revelation 21, and there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. You remember that from the chart and talked with me saying, come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. So he says here, I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away into the spiritual great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. So who is the bride, the lamb's wife? Well, it's, it's not just the city, it's the occupants that are in the city, but it's using the term city. So where is Ron today? Where is Kelly today? They are the bride of Christ today. Now we are in waiting. Ron, Kelly, they're spotless at this point. We're still trying to get well, we are in Christ spotless, but he's saying, give me a little something to work with. You know, he's wanting us to participate. But nonetheless, technically is the church, the bride of Christ. Technically we will be, but technically we're the body of Christ. And that has all to do with location, location, location. Right now we're located on planet earth. So we're to be his body. In other words, we're the one, we are the expression of Christ to the world. We're his body. So how's the world going to see Christ? It's through his body. The reward of that, of course, is to be part of the bride of Christ, which the scriptures here tells us exactly. The bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, he speaks about it. So he talks about a great city. Descending out of heaven, it says, the great city, the holy Jerusalem. The bride in Revelation, there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had seven vials full of the seven last plagues. And I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife, the great city, holy Jerusalem. I did it again. The Jewish wedding pattern. Now, I taught that at one time during the short teaching of as in the days of Noah. How do you say that word? Ketubah is the betrothal. In other words, I went over the wedding feast on how that is typical of what's happening now in that Jewish wedding pattern. You have a payment of the purchase price. You're set apart or sanctified. The bridegroom departs to the father's house, which we know that he has departed now. He prepares a room for addition. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. It's all Jewish wedding symbolism. The bride prepares for his imminent return. And as we know, he's coming. He's coming after us. Then you have a surprise gathering here we see in Jeremiah because the bride doesn't know when he comes. Then we have a seven-day marriage supper, which is typical of the Jewish wedding. And there you have it in Judges and Matthew. Now, the marriage is fulfilled. We see the covenant's established. First Corinthians purchase price, First Corinthians 6. Bride set apart. Ephesians, that's a comparison to us today. Reminded of the covenant in First Corinthians. The bridegroom is left for the father's house. They escort to a Accompany him upon his return together, his bride. That's First Thessalonians. Now I want to get into just a little bit as I've got to move quickly the history of our millennialism and why does this pertain. And the reason I put this in here is because I'd say 50% or better of the Christian church, their theology is our millennialism. Is it more? Probably more. So anyway, and is is our millennialism? Our millennialism holds that the millennial has already begun and is simultaneously with the current church age. It promotes that the 1,000 years is allegorical and not literal. 
And so the idea is that it's going on now, it's millennial reign. The one problem I have with that is that Satan himself is to be bound during this time and it looks like to me he's kind of running loose. I don't know how y'all think on that one. What is a simple definition of allegory? That's what all millennialism does. It makes an allegory out of scripture. I want to look at that just quickly. Simple definition of uh, allegory. An allegory is a symbolic fictional narrative that conveys a meaning not explicitly set forth in the narrative. Allegory, which encompasses such forms as fable, parable, may have meaning on two or more levels and that the reader can understand only through an interpretive process. The question is, who interprets? And if, to me, if more than one person gets to interpret it, that means if we got 10 people in the room, we got 10 different, we could have possibly 10 different definitions. And that doesn't set well with me, and it is, tends not to be scriptural. Second Peter says this, knowing the first that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I believe that scripture has correct interpretation and to make an, an allegory or a fable or a parable out of all of this scripture automatically means that the scripture, you can make it say anything you want to. And that's what we have happening today. People have all different types of, but if you're an amillennial if you believe the millennial is going on now, then, and that's where most of the church is. That's with the Catholicism. That's where you get into replacement theology a lot, that the church replaces the Jewish nation. It replaces Israel. And once you do that, you start getting into all of these allegories and these different narratives that, I mean, it's just, you can make anything out of it you want. Now, we tend to be, of a, we're more of a, what we call a literal. Thank you very much. Now, see, that's a man who hears from the Holy Spirit of God. So it's important. We're more of the mindset, more of a literal interpretation of Scripture. We believe God said it like He said it, where He wanted to say it, where He says it, as He says it. I believe God wrote a book that a dairy farmer with a 12th grade education can read and understand. I believe that. And so... That's more of our persuasion of everybody that comes to this church. We're more literal. We understand how to spiritualize things too. Now, the scriptures are what we call dimensional. We believe that Christ came to this earth, and we believe, according to the scriptures, that Christ, as we're born again, is in our heart, right? We believe there was a literal tabernacle upon the earth that the Jews built. But now we have the revelation that also that we are the tabernacle of God, right? Well, just simply because I am now the tabernacle of God, does that do away with the original tabernacle of God? No, no, not at all. It was given as a type and a reflection to teach me about this tabernacle of God. So a lot of people want to say that the spiritual application is more important than the literal application. I say that the literal application is of necessity so that the spiritual application can be applied and become real. So it's it takes both. You don't maximize one over the other, nor do you minimize one over the other. It's the way God is part of the language of God to create. It's reason in Romans chapter one says, come on guys, just look at the creation. Look at what God's created. If you want to see if, if there's a God, because God, one of his languages, there was, there wasn't much language in the beginning. I mean, God did show and tell. And so anyway, here we see the history of millennialism and the origin of Alexandria, that's actually his name, was 185 A.D. to 253 A.D. And this is where making scripture into an allegory, the teachings here, started to 
to originate. Now, if you'll notice, that's 185. So prior to that, it was pretty much just basically literal. But just historically going back and reviewing where did this originate from, it was there with origin of Alexandria. Augustine of Hippo was 354 A.D. and 430 A.D. Now, he adopted amillennialism as a way of proper interpretation of the Scriptures because their revelation was limited at that time. Uh, a lot of people say, well, you need to, the older you go back, the more purer you get. Nah, not necessarily so. God has continued to bring revelation to His Word for the last 2,000 years. So technically, we should have more revelation now than anybody in the Scriptures. That's just, technically, that's the way it is. God didn't dump it all out and we've dumbed down for the last 2,000 years. It's not the way it works. God tends to, now we did have a lot of the Scriptures. We know that we lost a lot of the Scripture in the Dark Ages. We know that God has been recovering a lot of those truths since the Dark Ages. But here we have Roman Catholicism as Catology started around 380 A.D., and we know that 312, 328 in that period of Constantine and what all that they did, and then the, the one after him, they started making Catholicism the religion of Rome. But you can see that the eschatology, they picked up on the millennialism. So today, that's what the Catholic Church holds to. The Catholic Church says they replaced Israel. The Catholic Church is the main leader in replacement theology. It just so happens during the time of Martin Luther and the Reformation, they didn't attack that problem. They attacked a lot of other things, but they didn't pick up on that one real heavy. Well, here it is. Okay, Reformation failed to address this problem. Most Protestant denominations are amillennial and post-tribulation in their eschatological views. You have to have tribulation already happened to be in the millennial now, because millennial comes after tribulation. So they're saying the tribulation happened in 70 to 90 A.D., it takes a pretty good stretch to go there. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I mean, if you look at actual history, if you look at actual history, that's a pretty good stretch. So, but I can see somewhat how they could believe tribulation was in 70 when Titus came through Rome, destroyed them, you know, tell them they weren't in the tribulation. But, but just like the Jews in the Holocaust, tell them they're not in the great tribulation, you know, so kind of about place, placement. So, but yet historically, that doesn't seem to be the case. Now, if you're a biblical fundamental, you are in a minority. And you can say, well, I don't like the word fundamental. Well, you need to be into replacement theology there. The dispensational teachers, and I want you to watch this, where I wrote here. The dispensational teachers brought back a more literal interpretation of the word again. And the Pentecostal and charismatic preachers and teachers brought back the Holy Spirit and the gifts are literal again. So the literal, and it really is disappointing to me when the Pentecostals and the Charismatics are so hard on dispensational understanding. I'm like, well, you're their first cousin. You see, you're, you're birthed out of that movement. Am I saying that the dispensationals had all the truth? No. It's the reason God sent the Pentecostals and the Charismatics. But the ideology and the idea of taking the Scriptures literal, and they all got their warts and their misunderstandings, but you can see what, how the Holy Spirit used those movements to bring back more literal interpretation of the Scriptures. I mentioned that on a podcast the other day. It got me a lot of conversation. Now, Israel and the church, distinctions are important. There's different origins, missions, and destinies. Israel was born in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of the country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, into a land that I will show thee. And I will make thee of a great nation. I will bless thee, and make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing. So you know here that God made, he started, God was working with mankind in general. Noah and all of that. He didn't have a nation then. But then God said, okay, I'm going to switch from working with individuals on the planet 
but I'm going to choose me a man and create a nation with him, and I'm going to speak my truths to them that they might show the earth what I'm thinking. So if you want to know what God thinks, how he thinks, you look at the Jewish nation. Now, God loved the Jewish nation, right? But how many times do you have to tend or hide? All right, you can tell when God's ticked off with Israel because they're not in their country. That's how you know. <laughs> the Jews are not at home. If the Jews are at home, that means God's tolerating them. And when they're gone, God's judgment falls. Pattern of God. Apply that to the United States. God's tolerating us right now. Doesn't mean we'll stay here. There again, it's, it's the ways of God. So God uses the Jewish nation to show us how he thinks. Now, the church was born in Acts 2. Replacement theology views deny Israel's place in God's program. That's what it does. That makes God a liar because from Revelation chapter 4 all the way through 22, it's about Jewish nation and God. It laid the foundation for Christian anti-Semitism, which I'm sure you can see that. When blaming the Holocaust on someone, you have to include the silent pulpits of the pastors in Germany. The term Holocaust is derived from a Greek word meaning burnt offering. Is that not amazing? Why do we call it that? Because it's about a, comes from the word burnt offering. That's just tragic to me. Paul's revelation of Jews, of Gentiles, and of the church. After the church A, the point of focus again, the Jewish nation, as seen in Revelation 4 and beyond, a distinction must be made between the prophecy and mystery of the church, prophecy being to the nation Israel. Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple therein for the Lord God Almighty in the land and the temple are of it, and the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God did lighten it. Won't that be incredible? What in the world do you think, Kelly and Ron? I mean, they're up there with God and there's no sun. I mean, just the glory of God lights the place. Can you imagine? You can read the scripture there because I'm out of time here. It just is incredible to me. The apocalypse brings a new creation and a new world. We see in Revelation 21, 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I will make things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Death always brings a new beginning. The book of Revelation helps us understand this truth. Revelation 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life. Clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb in the midst of the street of it and either side of the river, there was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruit and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb of God shall be in it and the servants shall serve him. Can somebody say amen? Now is that not, do you realize that what we're looking forward to is not necessarily here? But it's where we're headed after this. And I'm going to have to, this is just more of the scripture. It says, behold, I come quickly. It says to keep these sayings of this prophecy of this book. It says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That's how he opens the book of Revelation. I don't know if I said that here. Maybe I did right here. Yeah, Revelation 1.11. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Of what thou seest, write in a book and send it into the seven churches. So the book of Revelation starts off with God's making this confession here. Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And I'm out of time. Now there's a, I did say I was going to finish Revelation today. Then. Okay, whether I do a good job or not, we're going to finish it today. Now we have the literal and the spiritual are both true. I want us to see this in this last four minutes that I have here. The literal application, the spiritual application of the scriptures are true. The scriptures are linear as far as reading, chronological. We can put it in orders. But the scriptures are also of a spiritual application. Peter in, goes on to say this, whereby are given unto us exceedingly great promise 
promises right there in the middle, right where it's underlined, uh, that those uh, you might be partakers of this divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. Uh, key words there, escaped the corruption that is in this world. How can we escape it? It's because our nature has changed. We have a divine nature. So we come to church, we read the scriptures, we have revelation, and we get together as a group, and we love each other, we help each other. What this does, it helps grow our nature, which is a divine one. Now, it's that nature that's going to cause us to escape a lot. We can say, well, all right, God's going to protect the Christians. Yeah, because he's in our heart and operation. This divine nature, the kind of nature you're going to have in heaven with Ron and Kelly at this point, they have a divine nature. Well, according to this scripture, we can start having that nature now. And this divine nature is very important I really hope you're not really satisfied with who you are right now. I hope that there's parts of you that wants to become more divine, godly, holy, as he said in those scriptures. And that's not a holier than thou. That just means that thou are more holy than you. It just means that the Lord's more holy than you. You realize that and you are willing to sacrifice how much you've been offended by people. Anytime that you've been offended, well, that's, well, okay. So what? You've been offended? Okay. Some haven't, some have Well, you benefit. Well, lay it down anyway. We don't have time to fix all of the offenses. We're running out of time. You can forgive somebody who offends you whether they ask for it or not. You're bound. It's slowing down production of the divine nature in us. And if we're going to live through 2024 and be able to stand here next year, our hopes is that our nature has changed significantly. That's our goal. What we want to do here at this church, we're starting up new classes, which start next week. Isn't that right? There'll be more information on that on a couple more classes. And so we're, we're adding teaching. We're trying to figure out how to get it all into this building and different things. And so then it'll be for different groups and be for this group or whatever. But our goal is to come out on under this persuasion, if you eat divine food, it'll help you have a divine body. So we're wanting to take in more of the divine word of God that it'll change us all. Is that okay? Can we come to church and be changed? Can we, and just pour in? In other words, we can do the Word of God, and the Word of God will do a work whether we realize it or not. It's just because it's supernatural food. And so we're going to be implementing a few things going into this year that we can work together as a body, as the body of Christ, that we might help support each other, have revelation with each other. We can be like uh, one big family and that we can have, uh, we want our groups, even our small groups and greater teaching opportunities of classes. It's our hope that you won't know this church this time next year. And I hope your hope is you won't know who you are this time compared to, I didn't say that right, but y'all know what I mean. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, we love you. And Lord, I know I didn't finish up Revelation real good, but I finished it. So Lord, we do ask and pray that you'd be with us today. I do pray, Lord, that this church, by this time next year, we won't even know, know ourselves, that we will all so grown in your divine nature that truly and truly, that as people walk into this place, that they run into your presence in such a supernatural way, that we'll all be swept off our feet. Lord, forgive us where we've fallen short, 2023. But Lord, we're opened up wide to your spirit, that we might walk in your ways, we might be an extension of your kingdom to this fallen world. And those that agreed with that said, Amen.